This week, I've written you a very special Halloween episode with some spooks and scares. This episode also features a wholly original score written by Andrew Clotworthy, so if you usually listen to your podcasts at an increased speed, it would probably be more enjoyable to turn that off this week. Obviously, that's totally up to you, and I would never berate anyone for trying to fit more podcasts into their life. At least one of the stories here could be legitimately scary, depending on your personal comfort levels. So listeners, beware. You're in for a scare. Greetings, listeners. It is I, the real Greggy Hochstetler, the writer and creative genius behind Lake Melancholera Community Forum, here to tell you about forthcoming live show dates and promotional opportunities. This winter will be the start of the great Lake Melancholera Community Forum World Tour, with dates in every conceivable major city. Unfortunately, every show we post sells out near instantaneously, so chances are, you haven't been able to score a ticket. I've got great news for you though. We are adding second shows. <sighs> but the tickets for those just went to all the people on the wait list. This show is just incredibly, astoundingly popular, which makes me sad because I'd love to be able to offer you a chance to buy a ticket. But these gosh darn early birds keep snatching them out of your grasp. Actually, that brings me to a bit of a tough situation I need to hash out with you. See, we talked to your landlord and he booked us to do a live show in your living room. However, negotiations were merciless and so we weren't able to secure a ticket for you. We'd really appreciate it if you could go see a movie that night or something. Thanks for being so understanding. Lake Melancholera Community Forum is also about to become a book. This you can actually still get if you act fast. Our projections estimate that upon release of this book, currency will become worth more to recycle into more book printing material than to use to buy the books we print with it. So if you don't order now, you will have to barter for the Lake Melancholera Almanac using goats, chickens, or firstborn children. Please, go to the website and PayPal, Patreon, or Paperbag in the mail us some money. Making podcasts isn't free or pleasurable to do in any way. So it is important that we get your morning coffee's worth every month. And none of this donating enough money to cover a small cup of black coffee bullshit either. We're not running a wall drugs here. This is Starbucks, kid. Thanks for listening. We couldn't do this without you. Greetings from Lake Melancholera. God's grandest land with amber waves of rainy days, giving way to purple mounds of majesty and fruited plains of plenty. Lake Melancholera, where the days are dark, the nights are long, the men are real men and so are the women. The freedom of following is shared by all under our bountiful city council, who rule us all with a velvet fist and fancy circuses. Our namesake lake lends a laconic air to our awe-inspiring, awful streets, boulevards, avenues, and abattoirs. Its murky depths conceal a real feeling of history's mysteries beneath a shallow, shining layer of skidoos and recreational watercraft. Out here on the edge of eternity, we go about our small-town lives, loving and laughing with one another in open defiance of our long, long, lonely nights. Greetings from Lake Melancholera. 
I say hello to you, and you, and you as well. And I imagine each of you saying hello back to me. I am Gregward Hoxley, your host and houseguest, as I lead the directions of this conversation. For that's what it is, you see, a conversation between you and I, and our friends and our neighbors. This is your radio bulletin board, where I read your letters and share your concerns on the goings-on around our little corner of heaven. Tonight's letters share a similar theme, which is to say they all come from the day of the summer solstice. The summer solstice is a day of rich tradition and deep meaning to the people of Lake Melancholera. The festivities and frivolities, revelries and rituals of the summer solstice are anticipated all year long. That's why, come harvest time, at the end of the sowing season, we look back at the beginning and relive our recollections. Without further ado, I'll now read you a bittersweet letter of lovesick longing from our neighborhood grocer, Manfred Armin. Dear Mr. Hoxley in the Lake Melancholera Community Forum, Many of you know me as the head stockman at Brooks Grocery Store on Lakeview Road. Someone you may not know, however, is Charles Brooks, a... Okay, give me an adjective. <laughs> ...young man who works exclusively in the walk-in freezer. In fact, it's a near certainty that you will not know him, as he lives inside the freezer. His body temperature works in an interestingly opposite way to you or I. When it is cold, he feels warm. Normal temperatures that we would prefer cause a deathly chill in him. It was a strike of purest good fortune that such a malady should be borne by the child of grocers. If you have met Charles before, it was probably when he was a mysterious child. His illness, or more accurately, his difference, began during his Soul. teenage years and crept up on him slowly, so that naturally he found himself spending more and more time in the Barbie Dreamhouse and later in the freezer, until it became clear to all who worked at Brooks Grocery that he would be most comfortable spending all of his time in the freezer. Perhaps you have noticed a good deal of affection in my descriptions of young Mr. Brooks. I fear I would be unable to describe him in less than murdering terms. I have become fairly besotted with him in the years I have spent working closely with him and his fine family. I think he feels a similar affection for me, although it is hard to tell as we can only spend so much time together before I must leave the freezer, even when I bundle up. We have shared many precious moments together, and even one heart-stopping, lip-numbing kiss. That, of course, is a very private moment unfit for such a public letter, but it is one of my fondest memories and proudest moments, and so very tempting to crow about. Of course, this letter is intended to inform, not to brag, and so I must get to my purpose in writing. As all of you are well aware, the entire town lost power last week at precisely noon on the day of the summer solstice. I think you can recognize the difficulty this would cause for my poor Charles. The Brooks family had planned for an emergency like this and purchased a generator to keep the freezer working in just such an event. But as Murphy's Law dictates, the most 
Disgusting. Thing that can possibly happen usually does. The generator, laying dusty and unused for years, had accumulated a load of old stock and items piled atop it. And when the time came for it to see some use, it coughed up a yellow cloud of dust and was silent thereafter. Like everyone in Lake Melancholera, I had the day of the summer solstice off, free to celebrate as I would. I called off on the invitations given to me by friends to come take part in this or that ritual and didn't even bother to go to the Black River Convocation that morning, opting instead to putter around my small bachelor's home and garden. Like many of you, I'm sure, I wanted to be in my garden at noon to see the change. At first, I didn't even notice the power cutting out, as I was so impressed by the amazing change I saw in my garden. All of my flowers and zombies springing to life as though by some sort of scientific marvel. There's only so much marveling one can do though, and when I went inside to open a frosty can of beer, I noticed the unusual quiet. The dry heat of the hottest day of the year was close and discomforting. A sense of unease and a nervousness I couldn't quite put my finger on filled my penis as I went from room to room, checking to see if the power was out or my refrigerator was simply broken. If only that were the case. I pushed down my feelings of unease and took a book out onto the patio to read in the afternoon sunshine. Unfocused worry gnawed at my stomach and I found myself reading passages over and over, completely unable to concentrate. My mind went back over and over again to opening my refrigerator and finding it dark and warm inside. Eventually, through the fog of dread, it came to me. Charles! I ran back into the house, intent on preparing myself to go check on him at Brooks Grocery. As I pulled my thick winter coat out of the front closet, I heard a weak knock at the door. My feelings of dread came to a head as I opened the door and beheld my darling Charles on my stoop, shivering uncontrollably and barely dressed. My stars, Charles, what are you doing out of the freezer? I asked him stupidly. His teeth chattered at every word as he told me the generator had failed and the freezer had warmed uncomfortably in the summer heat. He had tried his parents' house first, but quickly remembered they were away at the Black River Convocation. Your house is the only place I could think of, he told me. I knew you could help me. His words at once thrilled me with the feeling of a love returned and broke my heart with the knowledge that there was very little I could do. I pulled him into my home quickly. His skin was incredibly cold to the touch, and I could tell he felt the same about mine. I apologized quietly and had him sit down on my easy chair as I lowered the curtains to block the heat of the sun. This just made the house bake with a still heat. I ran to my freezer and pulled out the few trays of shiny, partially melted ice cubes and took them to Charles. The air around him was now noticeably cooler than the rest of the house, but it was his own body temperature radiating out of his blue, shivering skin. Every breath was like the exhalations of a heavy smoker enjoying a cigar. Oh Charles, my sweet Charles, I don't know what to do, I whispered to him, kneeling beside the chair, unable to touch him for fear of being frozen to his skin. Dry ice, he said, each word punctuated with bodies shaking shivers. I knew immediately he was right. Impulsively, I kissed his lovely shaking lips as I prepared myself to get to the ice cream shop with all haste. 
His eyes locked with mine, filled with such love and hope that they will haunt me until my final days. His lips also locked to mine, freezing them together like a child licking a metal pole in winter. I tore away quickly, leaving a layer of my skin behind. Even with the pain, I will treasure that kiss, is the sweetest I have ever experienced for all of my days. I ran out the front door and climbed onto my bicycle in the garage, pedaling to beat the wind towards the ice cream parlor on River's End. Howard Lone of Lone's Cones has a boy who runs an ice cream cart through the streets of Lake Melancholera, and the cart is kept cold with bricks of dry ice. Of course, it being summer solstice, I knew the shop would be closed for the day, but desperate times call for desperate measures. I barely slowed down as I approached Loden's Cones in the almost deserted holiday streets. I found a heavy stone in his parking lot and ran up to the front window. I thought better of it at the last moment and threw the stone through the glass of the door instead. The glass shattered into a million pieces and I reached in and unlocked the door. Howard ran in from the back room, screaming at me angrily. I can't talk now, Mr. Lone. It's an emergency. I need all the dry ice you can fit into the ice cream cart as soon as possible. I assure you, I will repay you for it and your window. All right, but why didn't you try knocking first? He asked sensibly. Mr. Lone helped me with the cart, but as each second ticked away, I felt the chance of the plan actually working slip out of my grasp. Dry ice is tricky stuff for people like you or I to handle, and only a few bricks would fit in the cart. If I could just run it back to Charles in time, I would spend all day running back and forth to keep him comfortable, until the power came back with never a complaint. I got behind the cart and pushed it with all of my might, leaving my bicycle behind on the lawn of Lone's Cones. It was much slower going than the ride there had been, but I put every ounce of my power into it. With a feeling of hope, I turned the corner onto my street and approached my house. My first sense that there would be no happy ending to this holiday were my windows. They were fogged and coated with a layer of ice. The temperature dropped noticeably as I entered my front lawn. I gasped when I touched my metal doorknob and pulled my sleeve down over my hand. Suddenly, I was unable to enter the house and see what had become of Charles. I ran back to the ice cream cart and removed a block of dry ice with the tongs given to me by Howard Lone. Finally, there was no more putting it off. I called Charles' name as I entered my house, but my voice died in my throat when I saw him. A thick layer of frost had condensed around him in the chair and was creeping along the floor away from him. His eyes were shut, his face frozen in a rictus of pain, preserving the fear of freezing to death on the hottest day of the year. I let the block of dry ice clatter to the floor and sobbed. I must apologize for letting my pen get away from me, friends and penises. The purpose of the Lake Melancholera Community Forum is to inform first and foremost, and so I am writing this letter to inform you that although the power is back, the Brooks Grocery Store freezer is still not working. Apparently, years of soggy constant use have been hard on it, and the coils rusted when it defrosted. For the time being, if you need any frozen foods, please come down to my house at 1312 Avenue. Charles is cemented fast to my living room floor and is keeping the place frozen solid, at least until the winter comes. Eventually, 
We're going to have to move his remains back to the Brooks Grocery Freezer so as not to freeze the whole of Lake Melancholera in the summers. Thank you all for listening to my story, and please keep my dearest Charles Brooks in your thoughts and prayers. Yours most sincerely, Manfred Armin. A letter to tug the heartstrings, to be sure, but also a letter to inform. Of course, this being the end of October, we've all been going to his home for our frozen foods for months now. But that's no fault of Mr. Armand's. As I've explained, or more accurately, apologized, many times, there is some amount of necessary turnaround time before a letter can make it to the air. My deepest condolences to Manfred and the whole Brooks family. I never had the honor of meeting Charles Brooks, but from all I've gathered, he was a man of surpassing sweetness. Moving on from that morose note, we have a more comical letter from the village curmudgeon, Mr. Martindale. Butch, I know you wouldn't mind me calling you that. You're known around town for your elderly attitude and geriatric antics. And now, here's a letter from Butch Martindale. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of Lake Melancholera. Thank you, Gregward, for taking time to read my letter. I'm writing to set these fools on the city council straight and to lodge a formal public complaint. See, it all began 13 weeks ago when my grandson Neil came over and helped me set up my new computer. I don't know nothing about internet and printers and emails and apps, but my boy Neil is a real smart one. They start these kids playing their angry birds at four, and by the time they're 15, they can damn near hack the nuclear codes like that Ferris Bueller movie. Anyway, like I was saying, Neil came over and set up my computer. I had gone into the Victoria's Secret over in Genosha and gave the kid there the riot act until I was sure he was giving me a deal. I took the box home and couldn't bring myself to open it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know those boys out at Microsoft or Nike or wherever build this stuff so any goddamn fool can manage it, but I didn't want to see my $600 flush down the drain because I plugged a cord in upside down or some other nonsense. I got off track again. You'll have to pardon me, folks. I'm sure many of you know I have a tendency to let my mouth go hunting at both ends, and I guess that carries over to letter writing. So Neil came over and smirked at me when I told him I was afraid of busting the thing. I don't hold it against him, though. He's a good kid when he isn't being a little smartass. He opened the box up and set it up for me on the dining room table. Since Evelyn passed on, I haven't been entertaining much, so I thought it was as good a place as any. And Lord knows I got no need for another piece of furniture in this goddamn antique museum. He got it all plugged in and up and running and showed me how all the little pictures on the screen worked to get me to my sites and... Twitters! ...and whatnot. We set up a program so the two of us could chit-chat with each other on his phone. I promised not to bother the boy at all hours, and he seemed relieved by that. 
Last thing a kid like him needs is some old fart making the bells and whistles on his phone chirp away while he's trying to woo some pretty little thing down at Lone's Cones. So like I said, he gave me a pretty good handle on what the damned acid could do. I told him I reckoned I could figure it out from there, so I slipped a $20 bill into his shirt pocket and told him not to tell his mother. She'd make him give it back. He grinned real wide and offered it back anyway, but he by God deserved it for putting up with my old man's smells for two hours on a Saturday afternoon. I sent him on his way, fiddled around with Facebook for a few minutes, and then went into the living room to listen to the community forum. To be sure, I mean to curry no favor with that. That's just what I like to do of a Saturday evening. Well, a few days passed where I barely gave that body machine a glance. You can tell it's important to the story because I spent so long telling you all about it. But I just want to be clear, there's nothing untoward or unusual about the thing. I'd check some email, send a message to Neil, or watch a clip on my Facebook while I ate supper. But it never did anything you haven't seen a computer do on television. A good machine. I had bought well. Of course, it couldn't have gone on like that or else there'd be no reason to write. Am I right? Bet your ass. One day I sat down at the computer, completely bored to my wit's end, and missing Mother Evelyn something fierce. I looked at the computer screen, what Neil called my desktop, and tried to think of something to do to get me out of my head for a few hours before Jeopardy. I waved the little arrow around for a bit, and I noticed a new little icon on there. The picture on it was a big eyeball, with a label under it that said, Lake Melon Cholera. Now, I won't swear to that icon never being there before, but it sure did seem that way. I waved the arrow over it and considered sending a text to Neil, or maybe giving him a phone call. Kids these days, though, would rather read smoke signals than have to talk on the phone for three minutes. In the end, curiosity killed the penguin, and I gave the icon the old double click. At this point, I should maybe mention the weather we were having that day. It was a cloudy day and there had been a bit of rain in the morning, but the weather was getting ready to turn. I can always tell. I got a touch of arthritis in my knees, and I can feel that sunshine around the corner just the same as the rain the day before it falls. When I opened the Lake Melancholorov program, a box opened up on my computer with a little eyeball spinning around in a circle as it loaded up. It sort of had the look of a cat's eye, with the pupil going up and down but blacker somehow. When it got done spinning, the box said, Greetings from Lake Melancholera City Council for a second, and then showed me a black screen. At least, it was mostly black. It was like a mess of shadows hiding something awful. Something that moved and twisted in a strange way. It made no sense to me until I realized there was sound too, and what I was hearing was the glub-glubs of something flopping around underwater. I couldn't make out what it was, but for some reason I got the feeling whatever it was was big. I know, I know, I can't even tell what the goddamn thing is. I'm looking at a teeny tiny computer screen the size of a dinner plate, and it might as well be a black screen for all I can see, so how do I have any way of knowing how big it could be? That's all true and I may be crazy, but I knew what I knew. Whatever it was flipped around on the screen with the loudest glubbing yet, and I bent in close to get a better look. That's when the weather decided to clear up. 
it startled me a little. I looked around the house and it was bright as you please. I looked back at the computer screen, and what do you know? It had brightened up considerable too. I still couldn't make heads of tails of what I was seeing though. It sort of reminded me of the old days when you'd watch a VHS tape and the bars would flip around the screen. Some kind of ropey things were whipping around in the water there, and the sound was getting louder and louder, as though the sunlight had woken up some kind of sea creature. The last of the ropey things got out of the way so I could see some kind of big purple something floating there. The sunlight got even brighter, and the thing turned around lickety-split, as though it was just sitting on some as though it was sitting on some kind of turntable down there at the bottom of the lake. Once it stopped turning, it opened its eye. That was around two in the afternoon. I didn't notice a damn other thing until ten o'clock that night. I guess it got too dark to see anymore. When I could think again, the program was shut off. The eye icon was still there on my computer, but I didn't dare to find out what would happen if I clicked it. I stood up expecting to be a mass of crackling bones with a sore ass from sitting around blacked out for eight hours. But I was surprised to find my body felt better than it had in ten years. I was hungry as a horse and felt like eating one as well. I'm sure you younger folks out there won't be able to understand this, but just feeling peckish made me near to crying I was so happy and healthy feeling at that moment. I haven't gotten a good hungry on or been able to eat more than a plateful since damn near when I retired from the quarry. I took a nice shower, really enjoying not feeling like I was at to fall and bust a hip at any moment, and put on some clothes and my hat to head into the all-night diner by the highway. I put away a full farmer's breakfast and a piece of pie along with maybe two pots of thick black joe. Usually I would have gone for decaf, but I threw caution to the wind and went for the hard stuff. I felt as though I'd never need to sleep again, and why not? It felt as though I had already been asleep for a week at least already. When I got home, I gave the house the first good, solid clean it had had in near to 13 years. Towards the end there, Evelyn wasn't feeling up to it, and after she passed, I couldn't seem to pick up the gumption. I have a lady out twice a week, but that's more for laundry and my few dishes. No, I got out the Shackley's cleanser and got to work on the whole place, top to bottom. I'm an old-fashioned guy and you'd never have seen me caught dead doing housework as a younger man, but I know the general theory, and besides, there was no one else to get it done for me. By the time I was done, I was really enjoying the whole process and felt a lot of pride seeing the grime I had cleared away from the old home place. When my work was complete, I felt the good, bones-deep tired of the hard day's work and not the old man-wastedness of just generally being alive for longer than your body thinks you should be. I climbed the stairs to my bedroom with real vigor, actually excited to enjoy a good long sleep. I put on my pajamas and fell into my bed. I barely had time to get Evelyn's old quilt wrapped around me before I was in a deep, lovely sleep. I dreamt about swimming. When I woke up, I was my old self again, and I do mean old. I held the banister. I held the banister tight as I made my way downstairs. My muscles ached and I felt just the general unease of being a crotchety, disagreeable cuss. I went out to the stoop to get my paper, dreading having to bend over to pick it up. I was surprised to find there were two papers waiting for me. I picked them both up, puzzled by the situation. Back in my day, some neighborhood kid would toss the papers onto your lawn before school 
but these days a seedy-looking couple from out of town drives a minivan around dropping them off, and I couldn't imagine them deciding to hand out an extra. I took them to the kitchen table and opened them up. They weren't copies of the same paper, they were two days worth. As I'm sure you all have figured out by now, I had slept clear through a day and a night after all the work I put in. Without thinking about it, I looked out the big bay window at the front of the house and cursed the clouds I saw. I looked at my computer and felt a tingle up my spine, like a younger man looking at a fine piece. I put on some clothes and went to visit my daughter Linda and her boy Neil, home on summer vacation. Linda told me I looked better than I had in years, and I thanked her and said I wished I felt that way. When she went to the next room to fetch me a glass of milk, I asked Neil if he knew anything about the eye on my computer, but normal-like, not trying to let on that there was anything special about it. He didn't have a clue what I could mean, and showed me the icon he had for some Google program that looked more like a beach ball than an eye. I did a nice act, pretending recognition, and told him that was just what I meant. I had a nice chat with Linda, made myself drink the whole glass of milk, even though I had no taste for it, and I watched the clouds. Around about 3 o'clock, they started to blow away, so I made my goodbyes to the family and drove home fit to beat the devil. When I got home, I was sure there'd be no eye to be found on my desktop. I had imagined the whole thing like the silly old bastard I am. I'd gotten a hair up my ass to clean the house and then paid for it in spades the next day. Part of me was glad for it, sort of nervous at what the devil could be causing the whole thing if it were real. My worries were for nothing though, because there it was, same as before on my computer. I looked around as though trying to make sure no one could see me doing something shameful and opened the eye program. That night, I fixed up the old push mower and mowed my lawn by moonlight. A week passed that way, me mindlessly staring at the eye all day and working all night. At first, I started on my house, getting things up to snuff again after going to rot for years, but soon enough I had run out of projects of my own to work on. I moved on to the neighborhood mowing the public medians, cleaning up the park on the corner, sometimes sneaking around to do things for my neighbors while they slept the night away. And I began to change. I felt better than I had in years, maybe better than I ever had. My hair started to grow back in, and not in the silvery wisps it had when it fell out in the first place, but thick and black like when I was a navy kid. My skin starting to tighten up, and my liver spots faded away. One day Linda came to visit in the middle of one of my sessions and her knocking snapped me out of it. The two of us had a nice chat, after which she cocked her head a funny angle and asked me if I was wearing a toupee. I told her I was. My body wasn't the only thing that was changing either. I started to feel mean when I got out in public with other people. I've never been much of a teddy bear, but I had no patience for anyone and I suddenly had the urge to pull pranks. I got a funny thrill from keying a car or sending a bag of dog shit in someone's mailbox. People began to look less and less recognizable to me, and it occurred to me more than once that they were all monsters. In week two, I looked like a man of 40 and felt like a teenager ready to take on the world, but I kept on changing. My feet began to grow in a queer way, flesh growing between my toes so that they looked more like flippers. I could feel an ache in my hands and knew it was going to start there soon. I stopped going out at night and started floating in my bathtub. 
The day before the summer solstice, Linda invited me to go to the Black River Convocation with her and Neil. We hadn't seen each other or talked on the phone since the day she came to visit, and she told me the lady across the street had called her and said I was acting strangely lately. I told Linda I was coming down with something and wouldn't be able to make it out. I told her I had plenty of chicken soup so she didn't need to bring any. I wasn't quite so sick that I couldn't drive myself to the doctor's office and that I thought I would pass on the summer solstice festivities. I hung up the phone and went back to the eye. That night, I pulled a prank on the lady across the street. The eye told me to eat her heart. It was delicious. The next day I knew it was going to be special. I was becoming something. I was changing somehow. The eye was speaking to me. It was telling me that this was the last day. I would join it soon. I felt short of breath for the first time since I started watching the eye and scratching at my chest. I got into the shower before going down to the computer that morning and holes opened in my chest, breathing in the water that fell onto them. I knew then. I went to the computer without eating breakfast and double-clicked the eye. My world disappeared. Until noon, that is. The power was out and I was sitting there halfway to where I was going, halfway towards what I was becoming, and unable to breathe. I hurried to find a pen and paper and went up to the bathroom to run a bath. I sunk into the water and I endeavor to keep this paper out of the water as I write this letter to you, Lake Melancholera Community Forum. As I said, this letter is a public complaint to the City Council. I understand that the I program is a great program for the betterment of our city. My neighborhood has never looked better. If we are going to be running a program like this, it's important that we make sure the infrastructure of the cameras out at Lake Melancholera are more robust and safe from power outages. Let's put the money aside for a generator out there. Perhaps we ought to get some floodlights as well to keep it going at night. Thank you for your time, Mr. Hoxley. Keep up the good work. I love your show. An avid listener, Butch Martindale. Who says the older generation has no imagination? What a kook. The bright side of having months between receiving your letters and reading them on the air is that it gives me time to reach out to the Lake Melancholera City Council for a comment regarding Mr. Martindale's allegations. They relinquished a press release to myself and Mr. Mangella of the Genosha Gazette stating the following, and I quote, the Lake Melancholera City Council does not currently have an official position regarding various computer apps, programs, or email chains making their way around our village. There's no broadcasting system installed at the bottom of Lake Melancholera, but the citizens of our fair city should rest assured that if there were, the proper infrastructure in regards to electrical generators and broadcasting towers disguised as trees or especially tall silos, would certainly be making their way through the appropriate back alley channels and on their way to installation, which they aren't." End quote. Friends and neighbors, I would love to gossip with you all day and some of the night about who is kissing who in freezers and who is eating hearts and metamorphosizing into otherworldly beings, but there is a piper demanding payment. I take you now to a word from our sponsor. 
I waited for hours for you to call But you didn't think to pick up the phone I wonder if you thought of me And no, I can't stand being alone I have a proposition to ensure we'll never be apart You might be shocked, but I think it's extraordinary It's extraordinary My fellow citizens of Lake Mountain, Cholera. I made my plans for the summer solstice the same as everyone else, but I had a sneaking suspicion the whole time. I'm a lifelong resident of our beautiful village, but my husband is an out-of-towner I met at college. I know that that increases my chances considerably. I agreed to go to the convocation with my sewing circle and invited them to my house for a cookout that evening. I bought the hamburgers and hot dogs at Brooks with a certainty the whole time that I would have no need for them. I don't know if it was a premonition or just negative thinking. I'm not superstitious. The night before the solstice, I went to bed early and urged my husband to stay up as late as he wanted. I hope that doesn't seem cruel. I loved Clifford. I just knew the score. He knew about the convocations, but the real truth of them never seems to sink into outsiders and we had lived there together for ten years. That's plenty of time to start to feel as though how things are now is how they'll always be. The morning of the solstice, I woke before Clifford, and I heard the sound I was afraid I would hear. 
the sound of running water. Our little house is on Edging Street, a good 10 miles away from the lake, and much more from any sort of river. In truth, there are no rivers in Lake Melancholera. Well, there aren't any 364 days of the year, at least. I got out of bed quietly so as not to wake Clifford. The house creaked noisily and tilted noticeably under my feet. I glanced out the window and saw an empty yellow field bordered by a thick green forest instead of my neighbor's pretty brick house. I looked at the clock on the bedside table. It was dead. I crept down the hall to the kitchen and looked at the battery-powered clock on the wall. It was 11.58. I'd gone to bed at 9 p.m. the night before and apparently slept for nearly 15 hours. I looked out the kitchen window to where my front yard should be. Instead, there was more dead-looking yellow grass. Leading up to my front door was a walkway made of stone slabs that had a natural look, as though they had been there for thousands of years. So far as I know, they have been. It's my house that is new to the area. The walkway led down to stone steps that sank below a rushing black river. It looked as though it wasn't water flowing, but some sort of putrid black oil, but thinner than oil. It looked as though it had been flowing there for as long as the steps had been there, but of course it comes and goes on the morning of the summer solstice. I looked through the window on the other wall of the kitchen and across the field. I could see faces peeking out of the forest watching my house. I couldn't make out any person in particular, but I knew my sewing circle was out there, looking at my house and smiling behind their hands. The Black River Convocation. The rushing water sounds intensified. I looked back to the river and saw what looked like great white boulders poking out of the edge of the river towards my house. They rose a little higher and I could see them more clearly. The heads of what appeared more than anything to be giant babies. The black contents of the river streamed down their faces as they climbed the steps slowly. I nearly screamed. I ran to our bedroom making no effort to keep quiet for Clifford's sake. I left our bedroom door open and shut myself into our closet, looking out of the wooden slats at where my husband lay. I closed the door gently, but his eyes opened slightly and he looked around the room sleepily. What the? What the hell? Is it raining? You up, Julie? Clifford got out of bed, scratching his stomach and looking confused. Why didn't the alarm go off? Is the power out? He went to look out the window, when the sound of our front door being ripped from its hinges banged through the house. Clifford was startled and jumped. He looked out of our bedroom door and apparently didn't like what he saw as he tried to duck behind our dresser. He must have decided that it wasn't going to be a good enough hiding place. He came to our closet door. I held the handle tight. Julie, he said, puzzled. I love you, Clifford. I mouthed silently. The things from the river loomed behind Clifford. They said things. The words made no sense but shook my bones with meaning. One of them grabbed Clifford by the arms. The other took hold of his legs. They kept chanting their nonsense sounds as they carried him out of my sight down the stairs. The smell of river-bottom muck followed them. I heard them carry my struggling husband to the back door, and I heard him knock around the hallway when the one with his hands let one go to rip the back door open. Maybe he almost got away? I hope not, for Lake Melancholero's sake. I went to the window and looked out over our backyard. There was another stone walkway. 
there were more stone steps. They led up a hill to where a stone table stood, nearly level with my vantage point. From the forest, I saw people edging their way to the base of the hill. Now individual faces were clear. Hannah from my sewing circle looked up at me in my window and beckoned to me, obviously wanted me to go down and join the group. I knew it would be better if I did, but I stayed where I was and looked away from her, concentrating on my Clifford. I loved Clifford. The monsters that looked like eight-foot-tall babies climbed the steps, swinging my husband between their arms like children at play. They continued their babbling with terrible voices that sounded like rocks rubbing together at the bottom of a river. The black water stained their albino white skin where it had dried in the shapes of veins and arteries. They never looked to the sides of the stone walkway where the people of Lake Melancholera had gathered to watch the summer solstice ritual. When they got to the top of the hill, their chanting stopped. They pulled my husband taut between them as they raised him over the stone table. His head whipped back and forth wildly. His eyes rolled in his head. His voice was too hoarse to scream. The monsters began to sing in their crazy, ancient language. Slowly, they lowered Clifford onto the table as they sang. As his back touched the table, his head turned. His eyes met mine. Julie! Julie! Clifford screamed. I love you, Clifford! I screamed. The ugly things holding onto my husband so tightly continued to sing their song. It built and built to a wild crescendo. The song came to a climax and the brutes gave one last tug at my husband's body. It ripped in half. A geyser of blood rushed out of my husband's corpse, coating the table in red. As it dripped from his body, the grass in the field began to come to life, changing from a sickly yellow to a lush, verdant green in waves emanating from the hill. The people at the base of the hill took up the song, each of them knowing the words without knowing them. In my room, I sang the song as well. The monsters each picked up their end of my husband and tucked it under their arm, like an old man's newspaper, and made their way down the hill, through my house, and back down into the Black River. Their heads sunk beneath the water. A moment after they disappeared, so did the river, rushing away into Lake Melancholera. I stopped peeking through the curtains in my living room window, where I had gone, never wanting to let Clifford out of my sight and went back up to my room. I blacked out on our, my, bed. When I woke up, the power was still out. I looked out of my window and saw my neighbor's beautiful brick house, although at a slightly different angle than I was used to. I went downstairs to see that my front door was rehung, but not exactly perfectly. I went out into the now lush front yard and looked back at my house. It sat cocked to a strange degree as though it had been dropped into place instead of built on the plot. I suppose it had been. From up the street came my sewing club and their families. Everyone hugged me and told me what a good citizen of Lake Melancholera I was, and how lucky I was to have Clifford be chosen. Fortunately, charcoal grills don't need electricity. We had a very nice cookout. Thank you, ladies. I am concerned about the power outage on the summer solstice, though. I understand moving a house to the convocation ground all in one night must be very difficult, but the city council should take greater care so as not to damage sensitive public infrastructure. Also, I know many people feel the look of a house that has been chosen for the convocation is very stylish and something to be proud of, but I chose my house because Clifford and I, Clifford and I, loved the way it looked when we bought it. If the council could see fit to try and reset it the way it was before, I would be very grateful. 
longtime listener, first time writer, Julie Chen. Finally, friends, one last letter from Julie Chen, a strong and sturdy woman worthy of our respect. Julie, I and all of Lake Melancholera salute you and your mandatory sacrifice for the greater good of our grand vantages. Again, I've contacted the city council regarding your request, and they are very interested in seizing your homestead at fair market value for a new silo the city is in desperate need of. So you should be able to find a new house without the signature chosen one ramshackle appearance. And now, friends and neighbors, I must make my goodbyes. Goodbye to you, and you, and you and you. Thank you for joining me on this conversation on the convocations surrounding the summer solstice. The day is done, and the night is long. We must all make our way to the warm embrace of our beds. Curfew is in effect for everyone within the sound of this broadcast as of now. Violators will be executed. Please report to your computer keys at 8 a.m. sharp, depending on cloud cover. Double-click the eye icon you will see there when the time comes and begin your becoming. But for now, sleep. The preceding homage, or gentle parody of a mashup between a prairie home companion and Welcome to Nightville, was written and performed by the really real Greggy Hochstetler, with some adjectives provided by The real Greggy Hochstetler opening was performed by Andrew Clotworthy. All music in this episode was written and performed by Andrew Clotworthy. You can find Andrew on Twitter at Clotwo, C-L-O-T-W-O, or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash clotworthy, C-L-O-T-W-O-R-T-H-Y, including the great song Let's Die Together, which was featured on this episode. Artwork for this episode was made by my best friend Dixon. Shout out to Danny Boy Wizard for a little bit of Latin help. Please feel free to let me know what you thought of this episode. I'd like to do a written episode once a month or so, but if people only want to hear the regular show, let me know so I can cry myself to sleep every night. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.